thank you so much, uh, Juan Carlos. Uh, as he mentioned, uh, uh, a colleague and a true friend from for decades, and um, it has been a pleasure to share the road uh, of um, coming from Latin America to to the United States. Has been a a wonderful trip and even more pleasant uh, sharing with uh, colleagues like you and friends like you, Juan Carlos. It's a, it's a pleasure and an honor to be the Milton Markowitz, the 23rd Milton Markowitz lecture, uh, especially in honor of someone as a pioneer as, as Dr. Markowitz. And um, uh, forgive me for being an adult uh, medicine uh, specialist. I know very well that children are not small adults. I learned that long time ago, painfully, I will say. Um, but I have to um, the fortune to be in an area that deals with babies and, and, and children. So, um, so here we go. Um, and also um, for uh, Juan Carlos and Dr. Salazar, it has been a pleasure to uh, have met Dr. Justin Radolf, who the two of you work together and have a lab uh, in syphilis. So today uh, we're going to focus on um, how it's uh, possible that we can do things to prevent that a parasite uh, can threaten um, and basically sometimes result in, in, in demise of, of, of the infected uh, baby, and how can we prevent that? And I think that properly when, when it comes to the brain, when it comes to um, threats to the brain, I think we tend to respond properly. The most recent example is with the Zika uh, epidemic uh, and the Zika virus erupted in, in Brazil in the Latin Americas and billions of dollars went to that properly and, and, and the alarm went on and we did it because primarily it was found out that that arbovirus was capable of crossing the placenta and uh, produce severe uh, brain damage. Well, this is another infection that does exactly the same thing, crosses the placenta and can not only result in uh, brain damage, but sometimes in fetal demise. And what I will show you today, I'll argue today, is that we have the tools to prevent that from happening. And if it happens, we have the tools to reverse uh, that damage. So um, just to make sure that I comply with the regulations, um, all the talk has been uh, a CME approved and um, fulfills the regulations uh, for conflicts of interest, and I don't have any conflicts of interest uh, to disclose. Mm -hmm. um, so what I will do is um, uh, show you with an example that we had relatively recently of how devastating, or remind you rather, how devastating this parasite can be in, in fetal's uh, brain. Um, it's a threat not only to the brain, but it's also a, a world challenge. I'll give you an update on the life cycle or revisit the life cycle, and also share with you our more recent data on the genetics of the parasite. We did that work and published it last year um, on, on what the toxin that infects uh, uh, our uh, population in the United States is made of genetically. Um, some considerations in the vertical transmission. And also wanna share with you, uh, we have a new diagnostic platform that we are about to implement in the lab. We are very excited about it. It has multiplexing capacity, so we cannot just detect toxo, but CMV, HSV, all the pathogens that can be screened serologically on the mother and can cross the placenta in a single assay with just one microliter. It's a huge um, uh, move forward in, in the world of diagnostics. Um, and, and, and so I wanna share that because it's really coming and you will be 
possibly um, using it, um, and then and, and treatment. Um, so the first part is um, I want to share this case of how even in a disease that has been known for more than 100 years, um, we still have misinformation that can result in devastating results. So this is a mom that was in her first trimester. She was told that she had positive toxo uh, tests, but no treatment was required. Uh, and it's interesting because mom had an uneventful pregnancy. So there were no symptoms, no risk factors for toxo. Uh, when she was interviewed, um, she did not recall having any of those, and she was not immunocompromised. And the entire uh, workup for the fetus, as far as fetal ultrasounds, uh, they were um, totally normal. And in fact, the baby was born apparently normal at birth. However, barely one month more of life uh, developed this uh, sundown eye sign where the baby cannot move her their eyes uh, upward. You are more familiar than I am with this. That because it stayed there, it prompted the, the pediatricians to uh, th think about intracranial hypertension. So just think about this, uneventful pregnancy, baby apparently, or fetus apparently normal, and this is what is found here. So an MRI that clearly shows a left medial frontal lobe lobulated mass with significant left ventricular um, uh, hydrocephaly. And, and you can see that it's most likely an obstruction at the foramen of Monroe of the, between the left ventricle and the third ventricle. The rest of the, of the uh, system is, is entirely normal. And obviously, um, this is a baby that needs to uh, be shunted, and it was uh, relatively successfully. However, this is the tragedy that, that, that can happen with uh, congenital infections that are untreated. And at this point, because the mom has, was told toxo is not in the, an, an issue, possibly we will have to think about what other things can be doing this, particularly CMV. However, because it was a mass, they needed to do the biopsy. And in fact, you can see this plethora of inflammatory cells in the brain biopsy. And then you start to see these structures that resemble uh, toxoplasma, and to the trained eye, you could say that there is nothing else that can give that structure in histology. However, we went further and got a spinal fluid, and it was, in fact, uh, positive for the detection of t uh DNA. Um, any time that you get a body fluid positive for, for PCR for toxo, that person, that patient has a disease from toxo. Um, Obviously, if you get the brain biopsy tissue and you get a positive PCR, the positive PCR will not distinguish between a latent infection, the cyst just being present, versus active disease. But if you have it in any body fluid of any human, it always um, corresponds to the presence of disease. So we did a serological test on the mom. This is after birth and clearly very high positive IgG, positive M. Um, and, and even the avidity was high, telling us that the infection was at least four months old because this was after pregnancy. Conceivably, these serological test results supported that mom was infected during gestation. And unfortunately, what she was told in the first trimester was erroneous. Uh, we never were able to access to what kind of tests or results were there. 
that led them to uh, mislead with the idea that toxo was not an issue. And we already had a diagnosis on the baby because the PCR in a spinal fluid was positive, but um, she, uh, we also had a positive M on the newborn, further uh, establishing that there was no question that this baby was infected. This is the reality that, that we see in our beloved United States. This is how Toxo is coming um, after the fact. The baby's already damaged, the baby's already infected, or fetal demise. So, and, and as, as a fortune to, to be a, a member of this um, <coughs> laboratory, um, we, we have been witness of this for 56 years, or I've been there for 28, but um, there has been this unfortunate situation where uh, we see it. Uh, so there was no question the baby had the toxo. Mom serologists were consistent with toxo during pregnancy. We recommended pyrimetamine sulfadacin, which is the treatment of choice. And what we have done now for several years in, in, in an effort to, um, um, to share knowledge and, and, and what we have is we release our phone numbers and cell phone to our, our, our users. Uh, congenital toxo is, is, a, is a world challenge, it's a global challenge. It is estimated by the WHO that about 190,000 cases a year, uh, this has a really good uh, confidence interval, uh, as you can see, so it's possibly a, a good estimate. More than 190,000 cases a year of congenital toxo worldwide. And this brings a huge amount of disability adjusted uh, life years. Um, uh, 1.2 million per year. This is per year. So it's significant. And, and the tragedy is that we have the tools to prevent uh, these infections and if they are infected to treat. Um, and why should we care beyond these numbers that do not appear to, to match what we see in our outpatient settings? So we you know, don't see congenitally infected toxo patients in, in every week. So it seems to not much why it's such a big deal if, if we don't see them in, in our practices. And I've been told that by really good intentioned people, like, you know, you tell me all this, but I just don't see them. Partly it's because we do, look, do not look for that. We don't look for, for, for this issue. Um, but we have to remind ourselves that the outcomes can be uh, severe, including fetal death. And, and we the other reason to, to, to think about it is that we may miss that critical window for, for treatment, either during pregnancy or when the baby is infected at birth. So it can be prevented by meds, and if the baby is infected, the damage can be reversed. So there is a, those two critical windows that can be missed if we don't think about it, because the mom may not have the symptoms, the baby not, may not exhibit the, the signs initially. Part of the problem is that the, when the life cycle of toxoplasma was discovered, and obviously it's the result of a lot of people working and painfully putting things together, research is always like a house that we built where everything puts a different brick, and at the end you have this conceptual way to see the world, at least on that area. Um, when the life cycle was put together, it was extremely exciting, and. And we know that a lot of people get infected by consuming raw meat or undercooked meat. Um, and a lot of people will be infected by uh, taking either uh, food or exposing themselves to the cat's feces of cats that are infected. What we forget 
is that those all cysts coming from the infected cats can also reach vegetables and fruits, can be in water, or even in oysters or, or, or selfish. And, and in infectious diseases, we are used to, as soon as somebody said raw fish, or, I mean raw selfish or raw oysters, we jump into vivible lificos and it's always exciting for us as a skin soft tissue infections and, and, and life-threatening sepsis. We don't think about toxo. So the, the most misleading um, uh, a, a concept that we have in infectious diseases, and I was part of it, is to exclude toxoplasmosis as a possibility just because the patient does not have the risk factors or because the patient was not ill. I, I, we have seen this over and over in, in, in the setting of pregnancy, in immunocompromised patients and immunocompetent patients. So patients can be infected with toxo without the presence of the traditional conventional risk factors such as eating you know, undercooked raw meat or being in the vicinity uh, of cats. These are the three most common infectious forms of the parasite in nature. Uh, we have the tachysoides, the cysts, and the oocysts. Every time you see a tachysoide in a human body sample, the patient has disease from toxoplasmosis, either from acute infection or reactivation of the, of the parasite. So the, the, the tachysoide is really the form that triggers a massive immune response, both adaptive and, and innate, and it causes the symptoms that are linked to this disease. The tissue cysts uh, is the uh, form responsible for the persistence of the parasite for, for most of the time, most patients for life, and it's usually asymptomatic. Though there is a lot of work now linking this presence of this cyst to mental uh, disease, uh, bipolar disease, schizophrenia, um, and others, and that work is ongoing, it's provocative, um, and, and it needs to be uh, researched, but it has not been established. So occasionally we get questions like, I have toxoantibodies present, should I do this or that? Not yet. Um, and then the oocyst is what comes out of the feces of the infected feline. Any member of the feline family can carry, they have the right receptors for this. This is why they are the definitive hosts, and they can put out millions of these infectious forms a day for, for weeks. Um, and so that explains why they, they spread in nature very well. Genetically, they are made of uh, several um, types. Um, the type two strain is the most predominant in Europe, and like more than 90% of the infected humans there have that strain, and in animal models, and possibly in humans, it tends to be less virulent. So they, they, they tend to just cause the, the, the chororetinitis here, and it, it can be passed to the baby and cause damage, but in general, it's considered less virulent, and that's supported for, by animal models. Whereas the type one and the atypicals, they tend to be more aggressive presentations, so the, the eye disease tends to be larger, they tend to have more symptoms in immunocompetent patients, and that type one and atypicals are more common in Latin America. In Latin America, you barely see type two, and in France or Europe, you barely see the type one, type three, so it's like, a, like two worlds. And the question has always been, what about the U.S.? Uh, if France has the type 2 virulent, 
and Latin America atypical, more virulent, where is the U.S. And we uh, were fortunate to have a visiting professor from France, Dr. Pomares, who did a fantastic job in our lab. And we were able to establish that in the U.S. we have both worlds. We have the group two, the type two strain uh, in this color, and it's about 44% of the cases that have the type two kind of low virulence like France. And then we have another 44% of the so-called atypicals um, that are the ones that are seen most likely in Latin America. And about 12% are, are from the type three. So we have more like uh, half of the situation like we see in Europe and half of the situation that we see in Latin America. So, so it is very likely, and we do see that, it's very likely that you will see in the U.S. immunocompetent patients presenting with more aggressive uh, toxoplasma disease, and we see that, and also patients who are immunocompromised reactivating either earlier or more aggressively because of that. And out of the atypical ones, 10% uh, have what is called the halo group 12 that is primarily found in wild game animals in the U.S. and also is linked to very aggressive uh, behavior at the parasite. Allow me to now go to uh, the uh, pregnancy uh, baby uh, setting. Uh, it, is, it has been well known that the primary way the parasite reaches the baby through the placenta is in the mom that gets the infection for the first time during pregnancy. There are two additional scenarios. If the mom gets infected within three months of conception, there, is a, there have been a handful of cases that have also transmitted. And we, normally those have positive IgA, not IgG, IgM, but also IgA. So in the lab, when we get a situation like that, we still recommend to do the preventive measures with the spiramycin if we can confirm the infection being acquired within three months of conception. The other consequence of that is that occasionally we, were, we get to be asked if a mom is acutely infected or a woman is acutely infected, when is it safe for them to, to get pregnant? And we advise six months for legal reasons and three months for biological reasons. So we usually say wait six months or if you are in a situation that is difficult, uh, then within three months. And the other setting where the transmission can occur is chronically infected mom who becomes severely immunocompromised during gestation. But severely means having AIDS and the AIDS reactivating the toxo. It's not um, the immunocompromise that you see sometimes during pregnancy. It has to be severely immunocompromised, but usually it's primary infection during pregnancy. Um, and then, this is the beauty. You can identify those at risk by simply doing serological testing early in pregnancy and then find out that the ones that are negative for GNM are the ones at risk to get infection during pregnancy by universal serological testing. And there is no question now, there was some controversy years ago, and I'd be happy to revisit this um, uh, if you have questions about it, that early maternal treatment decreases uh, the mother-to-child transmission, and if the baby is infected, treating the mom by that treating the baby in utero will reverse significant damage or prevent significant damage. This is a study that, that was published uh, last year on the prenatal therapy comparing pyrimetamine sulfadacin with the spiramycin as the upfront 
treatment regimen for women who are acutely infected. So mom is acutely infected, what do you do? And primarily there are two things to do. Either spiramycin that concentrates in the placenta five times the serum concentrations, and that has been shown to decrease transmission, or pyrimetamine sulfadiazine that will not only block transmission, but also will treat the baby. And in this study, they show that pyrimetamine sulfadiazine upfront first, as long as the woman was 14 weeks pregnant or older for the teratogenic effects of, of pyrimetamine, there was a reduction in transmission favoring pyrimetamine uh, sulfadiazine. But this is just uh, one randomized uh, trial because the, 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 the whole uh, field of how to prevent toxicity during pregnancy has been supported by more than 30 studies, more than 9,000 patients. And in fact, I was asked to editorialize that in, in an American journal of obstetrics and gynecology, where I said that, is, it, is the glass half full or half empty? Half, half empty because we don't have placebo controlled randomized trials. That's why it could be half empty, but it's half full because we have plenty of data supporting that instituting either spiramycin or pyrimetamine sulfadiazine, and possibly with this study, pyrimetamine sulfadiazine over spiramycin, 14 weeks of pregnancy or after, you clearly decrease the rates of transmission and sequelae. So we have studies that were published for more than 50 years, um, and, and, and it supports that as we do for other rare diseases like rubella, doing the systematic uh, serological screening in pregnancy uh, does, does, does work. Um, it is well known that as you advance in gestational age and, and the primary infection is acquired later in gestation, you have more transmission. Uh, that uh, possibly applies to other congenital infections. It is well known also that if you acquire the infection earlier, your clinical signs are worse. But the two curves, the curve of transmission increasing with gestation and of the severity of the disease decreasing over gestation, they meet in the middle. So the true high risk is between 20 and 28 weeks. Some programs who do not have the economic capacity to do the screening to, for the women serially in too many uh, times, they have chosen to do one early and one at 28 weeks because of this. They want to capture that very high risk window uh, there. I want to call your attention to this. All these data about transmission rates and severity are in patients who have been subject to systematic prenatal screening and treatment. So we tend to forget that these are the transmission rates in women who have received spiromycin and who have been treated with pyrimetamine sulfatacin if the baby is infected. So what are the two main questions when, 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 when you think about toxo in pregnancy that, that we need to answer in, in, in every time? One is, was the mother infected during gestation? Remember that we said that the most common scenario is, is the mom acutely infected. That really is the one at risk with the other two exceptions that I mentioned. And for that, the tools are serological, the traditional being IgG, IgM. However, we have a challenge in, in TOXO, and is that the M can be false positive or it can persist, even in chronically infected individuals. And for that reason, we need confirmatory testing for that M. And, and that's really the reason the Remington lab exists, is because um, 
we need to make sure that this is uh, indicative of acute infection and not simply a false positive or a true positive, but in a chronically infected individual. And for that, we have tools like IgA, IgE, the IgG avidity, and the differential agglutination. The more acute the, uh, the, the infection is suspected to be, the, more, the, the higher the suspicion is for acute, the more IgA and IgE are helpful. So if you have positive and with a positive A, the possibility of acute infection raises four to four, five, four time. And if you have positive A and E, it's an acute infection. Um, the ability, as you know, if it's high, it means the infection has been present for a number of months, depending on the kit. So the kit that we have, if the ability is high, the infection has been present for more than four months. So you can place the infection safely beyond that, that window. And we have this fantastic test that unfortunately is, is one of two labs in the world that have it, where we can expose antigens on the actual live parasite by treating the parasite with either methanol or formalin, and that will create antibodies that are seen either early or really late in infection. So if this differential agglutination result is, is consistent with a non-acute pattern, the infection has been present for more than a year. So this is really huge because often they sent us the sample on the mother for the first time after birth. And they want us to tell you or they whether the infection has been acquired during pregnancy. But if we get this result non-acute, we can say this infection is older than a year after birth, more than nine months, so it's before pregnancy. Um, so that's, that's really a, uh, a true blessing that, that, that we have there. And now for the baby, so for the mom, the PCR is very uh, not much uh, of use uh, of maternal blood. But for the baby, not only serologies are helpful, but also PCR, and, and we'll see how that is helpful to see whether the baby is infected. This is the work that we did uh, we uh, had like uh, 451 patients that were uh, referred to us with positive M's all over the U.S. And, um, and only 22% of those positive M's from outside end up being acute infections. And so that's the other big lesson. Please don't let the patients make decisions like abortion or things like that based on positive M's in, in, in hospital or commercial labs. We need to do the further work. Allow us to do that. We, we are not for profit. Uh, we just want to, to, to help on this situation um, because 78% will be good news uh, for those patients. So what triggers clinicians to test for, for Toxo uh, in, the, in the US? Um, during pregnancy, there are some practices in the US, and I'm sure there are some in Connecticut, that will do the test for pregnant women, even though the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology do not uh, endorse doing the routine testing, but there are some practices that do. And this is also uh, done in places like France, Austria, Belgium, Germany, Argentina, Uruguay, Italy, Brazil, Lithuania, where in France, for example, by law, as soon as the woman is pregnant, she gets to be tested for Toxo. And if the woman renounces it, the woman says, uh, uh, rejects the, the, the test, she loses her their healthcare um, rights. Um, and, and as you know, um, in France, um, 
is universal healthcare. Um, so, um, so that's one way you, you identify the negatives and then the ones that become positive are the acutely infected by seroconversion. Uh, you could also test it if the mother gets illness or, or have risk factors, but we already know that if you do this, you only pick up 50%, the other 50% will be uh, messed. Uh, occasionally you just get to know that this is toxo or you have to do the toxo testing because you get sadly abnormal fetal ultrasound. Pregnancy should be a happy event for parents and not, and not a tragedy. Um, and, and that can be um, prevented by doing that. Um, we, we published this um, article because um, we did this exercise. So how is it possible that we have one parasite? How is it possible that toxoplasma gondii is approached during pregnancy in such a diverging way, comparing France with the US? So we took one of our patients, 29 weeks of gestation, happily pregnant, and she get um, told the sad news that her fetal ultrasound had revealed the presence of, of hydrocephalus. This is the actual ultrasound in that patient, 29 weeks of gestation. Um, as she got the news uh, of that, she started on pinemethamensulfadacine, her abnormal fluid PCR is positive, and sadly the baby was born still with the hydrocephalus, brain calcifications, and choreoretinitis. So we did the exercise. If this woman would have been in France, she would have been screened early. She would have been found to be negative for several months because they do the screening every month, every month. Um, and then, based on our testing, we estimated that she was infected at 17 weeks. So she would have been started on spiramycin within three weeks of the 17 weeks. And because the amniotic fluid PCR is performed 18 weeks or shortly after, she would have been started on pinimetamensulfadacin possibly 13 weeks earlier than in the US and possibly would have not have this so severe a disease. In France, before they <coughs> instituted their policy of screening and treating every pregnant woman, they did not see, the, they, they saw the hydrocephalus and the cororetinitis. Now that they have had this policy for more than 30 years, it's rare for them to see hydrocephalus and to see brain calcifications. Um, and, and, and Toxo can do that. Toxo can de, do the severely affected babies, but the babies, as I showed you initially, can be apparently normal at birth, um, or they can have these uh, um, uh, scars and, and, and chororetinitis and this severe um, uh, brain disease. These are examples of babies in the US from the Red Book hepatosplenomegaly, more uh, horrible calcifications, hydrocephalus, and look at this huge um, scar. It's kind of away from the macula, but it's still is, is really bad. But this is, this is the tip of the iceberg because there will be a lot of them who will look okay and, and they will have the retinitis later. So how do we make the diagnosis of congenital toxo? Uh, some of the biological considerations that we have that you are very familiar with is that the IgG as a monomer uh, immunoglobulin um, crosses the placenta, and if the baby is only having the G from the mom, it disappears within one year, usually around six, seven months. Um, however, the baby that is infected will create its own IgG, and then it will be positive by one year. The maternal IgM even is uh, pentameric and big, 
still can be present by contamination in newborn's blood until five days. The maternal IgA uh, dimeric can be as a maternal contamination present in baby's blood until 10 days of life. However, toxodna in any body fluid is always abnormal. During pregnancy, amniotic fluid PCR, if it's positive, is diagnostic of congenital toxo without, uh, unless the, the, the remote possibility one hopes of, of, of laboratory contamination, one hopes that is rare. Um, and if the mom is infected early in pregnancy and you get a negative amniotic fluid PCR, then that baby is not infected. It has a 100% negative predictive value. It's not, it's not that negative, that high negative later in gestation, but, but we, we put all these algorithms when we um, uh, uh, advise patients. Um, the other ways to make the diagnosis then for congenital toxo, in addition to having that positive amniotic fluid PCR, includes if the baby has a positive G that stays positive all the way to 12 months of age, or if the M is positive in the baby after five days of life when there is no more maternal blood contamination, or if the A is positive after 10 days of life. Some babies that get transfused with blood may have positive M from the, from the donor, so just be aware of that. Uh, but positive PCR B in amniotic fluid, spinal fluid, blood, or urine is, is diagnostic of toxo. Presence of M in a spinal fluid like we do for West Nile, but it's rare. So if you have spinal fluid in your hands, ask for PCR, not for IgM, for toxo. This is an example of a baby 15 days of life in the US. 15 days, so it's past the five days, past the 10 days for, for IgA. And look at this, no, it's unequivocal that this baby has congenital toxo. Sadly, we don't get any history of how affected the baby is, but this is diagnostic and requires pinimetamine sulfadiazine. Another case, six months old, infant with a retinal scar, um, optic disc, this is the fovea here, and in the other eye, you can see the scar here. Um, positive for G at six months. Remember that we said that the G disappears uh, before one year, the baby is not infected. This 8,000 titer will never disappear in the next six months uh, because it goes by half every month. So clearly congenitally infected with, with eye disease. Um, and no, no question about it. And in those cases, we still recommend uh, treatment up to one year. This is an even more recent case. Um, this baby was delivered at the end of 2018, um, has cord multiple brain and spinal cord disease. Toxo can also get into the spine. 28% eosinophils. And so eosinophilic meningitis, that, you know, angiostrangulus, cantonensis and coxy and lymphoma and shunts. Congenital toxo is one cause congenital, not adult, congenital is of eosinophilic meningitis. And the other feature that is unusual is this very high level of protein, more than one gram, that we see traditionally in, in, in mycobacteria, in tuberculosis, in, in fungi. Congenital toxo is the one of the few causes of very high levels of protein in the spinal fluid, and it's likely part of the responsible for the obstruction and, and, and the hydrocephaly. And you can see that there is no question 
this baby has um, congenital toxo. So very sad case. Um, and in those cases, we, um, and this is the mom. This case is so recent that we haven't <coughs> completed the testing for the mom yet, but there is no question this mom was infected during pregnancy, passed the infection to the baby, and got to the baby's brain and eye, unfortunately. This is the picture that we have in the US of, of babies who get referred to us. About 87% are positive for M, 77% positive for A, and both M or A, 93%. There are some babies who are M negative, who are A positive, so we recommend doing both, both to be able to pick up with either one. Um, and this is the picture of spinal fluid positivity of of the babies that we have tested for, for, for toxo in the spinal fluid, about half of them are positive by PCR. So having a negative PCR never rules out uh, congenital toxo. And the earlier you get the, the PCR, the higher is the positivity in a spinal fluid. Um, you can exclude toxo uh, definitively if you lose the G before one year of life. Um, usually it's by month six, seven, when you lose the, the G. So you can reassure 100% to those parents their baby is not infected by doing that. And finally, we're very excited to move to a new territory in, in diagnostics. Uh, this is one of those things that happen when you walk um, and meet a potential collaborator in the hall. This is exactly how this happened. Uh, Professor Honji Dai at Stanford in the Department of Chemistry had developed this fascinating way to amplify ELISA signals. So they place a, a sheet of gold, the actual AU um, material. Uh, it's very cheap because it's very small. It's at the nano level. And then at the bottom of the slide, you print the antigens that you want to detect. And that can be toxo, can be syphilis, can be herpes, CMV. And then you, from that antigen, you build the traditional ELISA system. And this allows 100-fold amplification signal with only one microliter. You, you need five microliters because the dilution thing, but so you can start with five microliters. The usual tests that we do uh, require at least 50 or 100 microliters. So this will be really um, important for those situations where you have very small samples. Um, and we have already done several studies showing that if we do the testing in serum, whole blood, or saliva. Saliva, we are very excited about saliva. Remember the babies need to be followed over time to declare them toxin-free by six, seven months. It's a pain to do these little ones. Um, so this system is very safe. My colleague um, in Lyon um, has already the system to collect the saliva in babies. You can see the baby here, happy face, with these little <laughs> things here. And this means the baby's gonna have the blood drawn. They put some lidocaine there um, because they're doing the study in pairs, but eventually it will be all saliva um, in our lab with this uh, system. The warting treatment, pyrimethamine sulfadacin is the traditional regimen. Remember prednisone for cases where the spinal fluid is too high of a protein or severe chorioretinitis. Um, so toxo should never be ruled out because no symptoms or no risk factors. Pregnant women should be routinely screened for toxo. If they are acute, they should be treated. And in babies, you can make the diagnosis with GMA after 10 days of life or PCR in any body fluid, including urine. 
Uh, I think that we have to defend children's brain, ample room to improve prevention and treatment, especially in the US, that threaten the healthy development of lives in, in these babies. And none of that would have been possible, all of the work that we have done without uh, Jack Remington, our legendary founder, uh, who put together this spirit of excellence and, 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 and care and, 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 and public health care. Um, and this is the team that um, we are very proud to, to have. Thank you.